Let's begin with a question. How do you grow as a person? How do you like, actually change? So that question might already be on your mind. Many of us right now are about a week into our New Year's resolutions. And you know, resolutions can be excellent things. It can be good for changing our habits, good for growth. But how do you know you're actually changing yourself and not just your habits? How do you know it's you that's changing? Let me give you an example. I can think of times when my habits changed, but I didn't. You see, I used to really struggle with wasting hours on the video streaming uh, platform called YouTube. Uh, maybe you kids know what I'm talking about. Uh, so I blocked YouTube on my laptop to not waste as much time, right? But then I found a way to watch it on my phone, right? And so then I asked my wife to limit my YouTube time on my phone to 10 minutes a day, password protected. You can, you can do that, by the way, uh, on most phones. It can be helpful. Uh, but then, so even with just 10 minutes to work with, that became my daily interruption, right? Even if I was doing something really important, I was constantly grabbing those 10 minutes in the middle of just other stuff because I felt entitled to it, right? So my habits changed. It took on lots of different forms, but I didn't really change. I still wanted the same thing, and it was distraction, right? Today, there are a lot of strategies out there aimed at self-improvement. Some say you can change yourself through sheer willpower. Others claim you need repeated spiritual experiences to give you inspiration to do stuff. And in ancient Colossae, that's the, the audience of the letter we're using from God's Word tonight, the letter we're reading, the local culture said you could make progress with human traditions and superstitions. Human traditions like don't eat that food, eat this food, or, you know, don't enjoy pleasures over here, only do this. And superstitions like you need to get certain angels on your side for protection, and then you're really a spiritual person. Then you're really getting somewhere, right? They thought those were the things that would give you wisdom and power. But the Apostle Paul writes that those strategies have no power to restrain the indulgence of the flesh. Here in Colossians chapter 3 is God's answer to, about how to be truly changed. Let's go ahead and read it together, starting in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The main point that we're taking away from tonight's text is Jesus Christ is the only source of true life change. And we're going to break that point down into a couple of points. I'll repeat it again first. Jesus Christ is the only source of true life change. And we're breaking that idea into two parts. One, if you're a Christian, Christ has fundamentally transformed you. And two, therefore, be transformed by pursuing Christ. Let's begin with point one. I'll repeat it. If you're a Christian, Christ has fundamentally transformed you. Real change begins not with how we change ourselves, 
but with how Christ changes us. All of the real change that happens to our souls begin, it all begins with what Jesus does to our souls. So Paul here in this text emphasizes four things that Jesus has done for us. These four things are the roots of real change in those who follow Jesus. Let's look at them together. The first one, Christ has put your old life to death. Look at verse 3. You have died. That means when Jesus died on the cross, that counted for you. Jesus suffered on the pen, under the penalty that your sin deserved, and because of that, you can have restored fellowship with God. It also means that Jesus set you free from slavery to sin. You used to be ruled by sinful desires and worldly ambition. Even your desires that seemed good were really bad because they were apathetic toward God and they dishonored him. But Jesus put the old you to death and set you free. Romans 6.11 says, you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Though sin is still a, a struggle for the Christian, sin is no longer the master of the Christian. That's what Jesus did for us. God's own spirit helps us fight against sin. In order for real God-honoring change to happen in your life, you need to be set free from sin by Jesus Christ. So that's the first one. The second one is, the second thing Christ has done for us is Christ has raised you up to new life. Look back at verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, if then you have been raised with Christ. That means that because Jesus rose from the dead, he has actually raised you from being spiritually dead if you belong to him. He has made you a new person with a new heart, new affections. You're not just saved out of desiring sin, you're saved into desiring God. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, God was not desirable to us before. We didn't want him as our, our king. But then God broke into our hearts and showed us his grace in Jesus, and he gave us new affections and new desires, desires for Jesus and desires for a life that honors Jesus. And that's why it's possible for a Christian to truly change it all. It's all because Jesus has raised you to new life, and he's given you a new heart. It all begins with that. It's impossible otherwise. Let's look at the third thing Jesus has done. Christ has guaranteed you access to God. Looking back at verse 3, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Jesus Christ, the resurrected king, has every right to dwell in God's presence. Who's going to kick the king out, right? And if you belong to Jesus, he has given that same right to you. Jesus has both secured you a home with God forever and he's granted you access to God right now for this life as well. Because of Jesus, you can be confident that God will always hear your prayers, that he will speak to you through his word, 
that he will help you obey him, like he actually helps you obey him, right, the whole way, that he will continue to grow your desires for heavenly things. So when you struggle against sin and you need help for obedience and you're weary from enduring suffering and you need wisdom for just living the Christian life, you can have complete confidence that God intends to supply that new life that you're living for him. And I want to highlight this here. If you feel like you're going through suffering right now, that's just, oh, I want to live for the Lord, but it's just, I feel like my wheels keep getting stopped and I'm beset with things that are slowing me down and I don't know how to kind of make it through this muck that I'm in. The Lord knows and he actually intends to supply all you need for living the Christian life in the middle of whatever situation he's given you. He's compassionate. His whole plan is to help you finish the race the whole way, not to leave you to run it alone. It's possible for you to grow and change as a Christian now because God is supplying your new life day by day. So that's the third one. The fourth thing that Christ has done for you, if you're a Christian, Christ has destined you for the day of his glory. Looking at verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. There is a day coming when Jesus will return from heaven to judge the world. On that day, King Jesus will finally be recognized as king by everyone, everywhere. Whether they receive him with joy or whether they tremble under his judgment. It's joyful and it's sobering. But listen to this. King Jesus has decreed that everyone who submits to him as king, everyone who believes in him as savior, all of those people, all of us who are Christians, will be treated as part of the king's family when he comes back. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you will appear with the king in his glory, recognized as part of the royal family. Christian, the Lord Jesus has destined you to reign with him in heaven forever. It's almost like, almost kind of doesn't make sense, right? Like, we get, to, we get to be part of the king's family forever. Your life change is not only possible, it's an absolute certainty because of Jesus. Jesus will keep you to the end, and he will grow you to be like him and make you a prince in his kingdom when he comes back. You can have confidence because of that. The end is already written because of King Jesus. So in summary, what has Jesus accomplished to transform you? I'll just hit them again because we need to be reminded of this. If you're a follower of Christ, then he has freed you from slavery to sin. He's given you new life and new affections. He's given you access to God, and he has saved you a seat next to his throne in heaven. Before Christ, you were enslaved to sin and you had no true affection for God. You had no assurance of divine help, and you had no place in heaven. In that state, no wonder you can't change yourself, right? But Jesus has accomplished everything necessary to make you his own, and now he offers true transformation to make your life glorifying to God. And that's the point. The, the point of us growing is not actually to become the people we just want to be. It's to become people who live for our real purpose for God, to worship him with everything that we are. That's where the joy is, and that's what God is making us into if we follow him.
Now, there's one enormous word in this passage we haven't addressed yet that we need to talk about right now. The word is the first word in the passage. You can go ahead and look back at the start. The word is a big if. If you have been raised with Christ. Not everybody has been raised. We need to be really clear about that. All of us begin as enemies of King Jesus, not as his subjects. Every one of us has rebelled against God by outright disobedience and by unrighteous apathy, and therefore we've actually committed treason against God and we deserve his judgment. So if you're under the sound of my voice and you're not a Christian, if you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, if you're not sure you've actually submitted to Jesus as the king of your entire life, then I must be really clear. You need need to understand this whole transformation thing hasn't actually happened to you yet. You still need Jesus to forgive you and change you. I don't say this to make you feel excluded or make you feel awkward. Every Christian in this room was once an enemy of Jesus, and every Christian in this room would urge you, acknowledge your need for Christ. You need his forgiveness. Cast yourself on Jesus. So consider everything we just said about him. Only Jesus can forgive us before God, and only Jesus can bring dead people to life. And listen carefully to everything we're about to say about him tonight. See for yourself that he's worthy of your trust. He's worthy to be your king. He's the only way to be truly changed. So real heart change can only happen if Jesus Christ has raised you to life. It all begins with his work. But then what? How are you called to participate? And that's our second point. Point two, again, is be transformed by pursuing Christ. Be transformed by pursuing Christ. Notice that the point isn't transform yourself. Rather, it's be transformed. The changing of your life not only begins with Christ, it's forever sustained by Christ. Look back at the passage. Notice that how Paul begins and ends this text with those four realities we just discussed, the stuff that Jesus already accomplished. It's there at the beginning and it's there at the end. The only commands in this passage, and there are two of them, we're about to talk about them, but the only commands are wrapped within the realities, within the works of Christ. The point is that your new life as a Christian is only possible because of what Christ has already accomplished in you and because of what he continues to do in you. When you're thinking about obeying Christ, what Christ has done should be at the beginning of your thought and at the end of your thought. You can and you must rely on him the entire way. So here are the commands, the things that God is calling you to do to participate in your continual growth in Christ. Verse 1, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. So we're called to seek and we're called to set our minds To seek implies to search, to go after, to actively pursue. It's more than simply saying you love God. It's putting your money where your mouth is and actually pursuing the things of God. And to set your mind implies more than merely thinking about stuff. The Greek word could also be translated as to cherish a habit of thought. 
It has to do with orienting all your attention and all your affections towards something. For example, many people think about basketball from time to time. I, I know basketball exists, that's a sport. Uh, but true basketball superfans are on the edge of their seats when their favorite team is playing. Their attention, their, even their joy, is invested in what's happening on the court, right? There's more than just a thought. There is an investment. And I think we all understand what that's like. We, place all, we all place our attention on something. So what consumes your attention day to day? The things that possess your sharpest attention and your deepest affections, those are the things that will decide the way your heart changes, the way your life changes. So set your attention and your affection and all your pursuits on, look back at the passage, the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That's verse 1. God is calling us to seek after the joys of heaven, specifically Jesus, because that's how we become more like Jesus, when all of our aim, all of our attention is upon him. So let's get practical. What specifically should we be pursuing or setting our minds on in order to be pursuing Christ and the things of heaven? I know sometimes when the Bible says, think about the stuff of heaven, can feel a little vague. I've felt that before. Uh, but to get specific here, let's consider how everything Christ has done, everything from part one, those four things he did to transform us, all of that is actually the things that we should desire and pursue. Each one of those things prepares us for heaven, for the destination, right? And each thing says something about the destination. We're going to look at each of them in turn, taking those four things and making three things we should be pursuing. The first two from part one become one thing together in case you were trying to map it out in your notes. Uh, but what we're going to talk about is we've been put to death and raised to life. We've been given access to God and we, we're destined for glory. So therefore, here are the things that we need to be pursuing. Number one, pursue freedom from sin. Christ has set you free from the power of sin and given you new desires for all that God says is good. But for now, sin is still a struggle, right? I know it is for me. And it still affects your life, hindering your relationships, your thoughts, your heart, things you desire. You've been fundamentally changed if you're a Christian. At the most basic level, you desire God now, but there's still sinful desires that are trying to break their way in. You've still got a sin nature. But when Jesus returns, sin will be no more. Jesus will take away your struggle with sin. And you will be totally free to enjoy all that's actually good. All the goodness of God himself without sinful desire to get in the way. Think about that. Like everything that's actually good for you. No more regret no more anything that tempts you to go after something that'll hurt you in the end. No more conflict, just to the joy of following, knowing Jesus, knowing your creator forever. So set your sights on that day. When you are possessed by a desire for God and the joy of heaven, you won't be controlled by the desires for worldly stuff. Don't fill up on the buffet of the world when the king's feast is coming. This world will try to grab your attention with all sorts of delights, 
that are just filler, even the stuff that's not sinful, just filling you up when there's something better. Christ has given you foretastes of heaven. Don't be content to munch on the moldy bread of dead men when the king's food is available to you. I think we all need that reminder. Go after the new desires God has given you for Christ, for holiness, for fellowship with the church, for loving others, for the glory of God, for obeying Jesus. That's actually where the good stuff is. And remember that God intends us to fight against sin alongside one another. God has designed the local church as the community where Christians lock arms in the battle against sin and against worldliness. It's where we say, hey, like, what's the food you're actually eating right now? Help me, help me feast on the stuff of God instead of the stuff of the world. Confess your sins to one another. Remind one another that Jesus is better than whatever sin you give up and encourage one another in the fight. So that's the first thing, pursue freedom from sin. The second thing we pursue is to pursue God's presence. Your life is hidden with Christ in God and you have full access to God through Jesus. In heaven, you will enjoy God's presence forever that constant, tender care of your true heavenly Father, the one who created you and loves you. Eternal joy in God is your future, so won't you give yourself to enjoy him now in the present? Devote yourself to seeking more of God every day. Christ has purchased access to the Father for you, so go to him in prayer. Read his word and gather with his people to worship him. Apply yourself to that feels like I'm preaching to the choir at evening service where people have gathered to hear God's word again, but we need that reminder every day. We have access to God and cherish it. And beware, for there are so many things in this world that will attempt to steal your attention. Even if something isn't sinful, it might be dulling your affections for Jesus. Going back to my example with YouTube, I came to a realization that I just can't enjoy YouTube in moderation. You know, I have self-discipline in a lot of ways, but like that's just one where time after time I lose the fight. I get distracted. So I finally asked my wife to just totally lock down my phone so that I can't use YouTube at all. And I'm accountable to her if I find a way around that. Essentially, I had to make it so that it's actually easier to pray or read the Bible than it is to go after my most cherished distraction, right? And so now I still get that itch to waste time with videos and stuff, and, you know, and the struggle's not over, but sometimes now, often, since the Bible, since the Lord is actually an easier or more arranged, that it's slightly easier to get there, to get to God's Word, by the Lord's grace, I choose that more. And to be clear, my point here isn't about YouTube or social media apps. I'm not saying burn them all from your phone. But maybe, depends what your struggle is, right? Is there something that's habitually stealing your attention from your Lord? Could it be sports or streaming services or social media? Maybe the opinions of friends, the stock market, your finances, school, video games, board games, all sorts of entertainment. There are all sorts of things that the world is trying to get in your face that will dull your desires for Jesus. We need to have discernment to, like, 
before we swallow all the stuff the world is feeding us, chew and figure out, hmm, like, is that, is that taking away my desire for Christ? And if you have to, you got to spit it out. That's what I'm learning. There are some things that I lose the fight to distraction, and i got to get rid of it, you know? Yeah, so talk with your friends and your family members, your fellow church members. Consider together what might be drawing your affection from Jesus. Take action to relegate those things underneath your pursuit of Jesus. If you have to, figure out what your cherished distraction is and relegate it. Put it somewhere. Hide it behind stuff. Put it, give accountability so it's actually easier to have Jesus in your face than the world in your face. Psalm 16 says, I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. We need the Lord Jesus in front of our face more than we need all the things the world is trying to draw us away to. And the point isn't just to be less distracted. The point is that the way you change as a person comes from beholding Jesus. So get him in front of you. He intends to change you as you behold him. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are all being transformed from one degree of glory to another. It's what the Lord intends to do in us. Right, so that's the second thing. Pursue God's presence. Here comes the third and final thing to pursue. Pursue obedience to your king. Remember from verse 4 that when King Jesus returns, you also will share in his glory as part of his royal family. So set your hope on that day when Jesus will be recognized as king over the whole earth and he alone will rule. Since that's the king you're waiting for, and since you will reign with him, devote yourself now to living in a way that honors your king because you want him to get the glory. Apply yourself to know what your king has said in his word and apply yourself to obey it all because you want your king to get all the honor that he rightfully deserves. This isn't paying Jesus back for anything. This isn't earning your way to God. It's not legalism to want to please the king who is your Lord, one who's going to reign over you and you'll reign with him forever. Don't you want him to get honor? That's where the joy is, to see Jesus get glory. And this principle, longing to obey your king, that principle will actually guard you against a great error. It's the error for growing for the sake of yourself instead of growing for the sake of God. You see, we we mentioned the, the culture and the false teachers from ancient Colossae at the beginning of the sermon, and the false teachers there had this problem, actually. Their growth was gaining them an appearance of wisdom. That's what Paul mentions in chapter 2, an appearance of wisdom and a promotion of self-made or man-made religion. Their grand show of religion and spiritual stuff was about making themselves seem spiritually smart. Brothers and sisters, I feel it. It's so easy to devote yourself to daily Bible reading and weekly sermon listening and good note-taking just to get more Bible knowledge. I know my own flesh, and I can think of uh, many days when I read the Bible just to say I did so that my conscience would be cleaner to watch TV later 
or to play video games. I can think of many times where I took sermon notes so that I'd be better at sermons later on myself or so that I would seem smarter when I needed to answer questions about the Bible. But that's not the point. The point of knowing stuff about the Bible. Bible knowledge is really helpful, but advancing in things of God is useful to know God. That's the final point. It's to know your Lord Jesus Christ, to cherish him more, to give yourself to him and to honor your king with your life. So I exhort you, yes, don't, don't take this sermon as a reason to throw out your New Year's resolutions. Stay on the Seville reading plan, you know. Uh, I exhort you, commit yourselves to good spiritual disciplines. But remember that the point of gaining Bible knowledge is to know your king and to be more like him for his glory. So when you read the Bible, don't be content until you're regularly asking how should this passage turn my attention to Christ? What about it reminds me of his worth? What is worthy and desirable about King Jesus in this passage? How should this change how I worship him? You're not done until you worship God by reading the Bible. And when you take sermon notes, don't be satisfied until you find a way to obey your king. That's my exhortation to you and my exhortation to me. So remember, Jesus Christ is the only source of true life change. Commit yourself to him, to be changed for his purposes. If you haven't submitted to King Jesus, I implore you to consider him. He's absolutely worth it and you need him. And if you're a Christian, then Christ has fundamentally transformed you, so be transformed by pursuing Christ with your whole life. Let's pray.